Hello and welcome to the Peace Love Plants Podcast. I'm your host, Marco Knox. My guest this week is Dotsie Bosch, and she is a person that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. She had a prolific professional cycling career that produced a silver medal at the 2012 London Olympic Games, eight U.S. national championships, two Pan American gold medals, and a world record. She's a plant-based athlete and the oldest to ever medal in her sport, highly accomplished and an absolute machine on two wheels. Now, while most of us think of Olympians as these bigger-than-life characters, they are human, and they feel pain. They suffer loss, and they deal with real-life issues, just like you and me. Olympians are made from the effort and struggles that they've endured. Dotsie is no exception. Before the cycling career, she had to face and conquer a serious psychological eating disorder that almost took her life. Now retired from competition, she pours her passion into missions to change and save lives. In this episode, we discuss the aforementioned struggles, her plant-based transition, the Olympic journey, and several other critical topics, including her most recent work through her nonprofit, Switch for Good. I hope that you enjoy our conversation in this episode titled, Compassion Over Metals, with Dotsie Bosch. Dotsie Bosch, welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast, my friend. How are you doing today? Thank you, Peace Love Plants. <laughs> I'm doing great. Still in quarantine, hoping it opens up soon. <laughs> Starting to get a little Groundhog Day-ish over here. Oh, I hear you. Me as well. No doubt. No doubt. You know, I've really been looking forward to our conversation because to me, you're a person that's truly making a positive impact in this world through your organization, Switch for Good. And I want to talk a lot about that. But before we do, let's take a moment to set the stage for our audience. Now, most people recognize you as an Olympic track cyclist and one of the athletes featured in the Game Changes documentary. But there is so much more to your story. So let's start here. You grew up in Louisville, right? Well, take me through that because I've been to Louisville a few times and it's a beautiful town. Kentucky in general is a beautiful state. What was it like growing up there? Drastically different than from your home now, I imagine. It's just a bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The politics, the ethics, everything, not just the scenery, right? But it is a beautiful place for sure, especially in the spring and the fall. But my gosh, my upbringing was a very typical all-American kind of Midwestern middle-class upbringing. I have extraordinary human beings for parents. They're both still with us. I'm going to visit them soon, actually. And it was uh, just a, you know, growing up in the 80s. So a lot more freedom back then than I think the kids have now, right? Like in the summer, we basically had to come home when the streetlights came on which in Kentucky was, you know, 9.30, 10 p.m. because it stays, uh, stays light. You're quite late there. So just a wonderful, free, open childhood where I grew up with a seven years younger sister. And I also grew up saddlebred and horseback riding. My, my whole dad's side of the family was in the thoroughbred horse racing industry. So owners and trainers. So grew up around horses, grew up around a lot of animals took me 35 years to make the connection that I love animals and that means not eating them. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that is a beautiful area for horses. You know, Lexington specifically, when I would drive through there, the homes and the ranches were amazing. And I learned later on in life, I live near Ocala, Florida, not next to it, but a couple hours from it. And a lot of the people would come down from Kentucky because they had stables in Ocala as well. Did you ever go to Ocala and do any, any riding there? I did not. No, I don't even totally exactly know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, the thing about riding horses in Kentucky is 
most people come to you because that is the hotbed. So I used to show horses in Kansas City and St. Louis. There were really big horse shows there, a couple of big charity horse shows, actually. But other than that, we didn't have to travel very much. We could have traveled up to Saratoga Springs. There's a big horse show up there. But, but other than that, we pretty much stayed, stayed put. I mean, the world championships were in Louisville. We really had it, you know, had it good as far as not having to travel much. Yeah. Were you into any other sports? Did you did you run no. or cycle at all? No, it was strictly just the horseback riding. Yeah. Yeah, definitely didn't I definitely didn't cycle. I ran cross country for a year, my freshman year of high school, but then just kind of burnt out. So yeah, I grew up in a I'd say, you know, a com- very competitive environment. I have a competitive personality, but I wouldn't necessarily say I grew up as an athlete because in my opinion, the horse is the athlete in, you know, that sport particularly, uh saddlebred horse showing. So So now I read that you got into modeling. At what age did you get into that? Were you were you still preteen? Were you teenager? Was it post-teen? How, how did that happen? And what was that experience like for you? It was in college and in just like anything else, right? You're trying to make a buck in college <laughs> at any moment, any given day, anytime you can. Strange look back into my college years. My sophomore year, I worked at the drive-thru at McDonald's. So that's in my history. It's funny because at the time, I mean, I wasn't plant-based or vegan and and it wasn't necessarily the actual animal food, the animal meat that, that made me sick. It was seeing them make the fries and it was right that the fry drawer or the bin that was filled with animal lard was right next to my cash register in the drive-thru. And they used to pull that steel drawer out and scoop that animal lard like with an ice scooper and pop it in the fryer. And from those days forward, I have not been able to eat a McDonald's French fry. It was so disgusting to watch that process. But anyway, McDonald's was not that lucrative. And so I ended up going to a modeling agency in Philadelphia where I went to school, just right outside Philadelphia at Villanova University. And just signed with them and then end up ended up signing with another agency in New York City. So it was going back and forth a little bit from Philly to New York, like my senior year doing some some modeling and then ended up moving to New York after college for that. So it was, you know, it was a fun time in my life, but it was more about um, making a buck in my early 20s than really anything else, to be quite honest. Now, was it print or was it runway or a little bit of both? What it's was, mostly what? runway. I'm not all that photogenic. I did a few things, but most of it was most of it was runway, and a lot of it was oddly enough bridal. For whatever reason, that was something that they really liked my look for. So I did a lot of bridal runway and a lot of touring with bridal shows and whatever. <laughs> Interesting. So now I know that you're passionate about supporting people that have eating disorders. Is that something we can touch on? Because I know that sure. during that time of your life. You struggled with that. I did. Uh, yeah, very much so. And it, it seems as if it might have been connected to the modeling. Most people tend to make that immediate connection because it seems to make sense. But it really had absolutely nothing to do with that. I was quite sick, actually, before I even started modeling from just, well, I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole, what it was from, but just I, I began a journey of self-loathing and self-beratement and just not wanting to be in my skin anymore. And it really, I, it was, it was kind of bursted out of a real feeling of feeling kind of out of control in what I was going to do with my life. What I had majored in in college was not what I ended up wanting to do when I graduated. And so I felt so much, I had taken out huge loans to go to Villanova and I was scared and 
I just had a lot of fear around what I was going to do, who I was going to become. And I just very slowly in the beginning started controlling my food and I wasn't aware that I was even doing it. And it was just now I, you know, later learned it was just me reaching out to try to assert some kind of control over my life because I felt so just out of control as many early 20 somethings do. And I started just ever so slightly controlling my intake of my food. And that turned into a beast down the road. That's how it got started. Yeah. And I won't go down that road too far because I want to, I want to stay on point, but I mean, I know that you struggled with it. I know you overcame it as well, some, as well as some other things. Can you just fast forward for me perhaps and talk about how you overcame it? What, what came into your life? What did you find within yourself? What was a catalyst perhaps that, that helped you push over that edge to, to regain your life and purpose? Well, there's a couple things. So, you know, again, like you said, you could do a whole show on the eating disorder as you can with anyone who suffered from any addiction, right? It's a, it's a long journey to healing and repairing from that. But I spent two, three years really, really sick to where I was just not even able to be a participant in society, wasn't able to hold a job or really have, you know, rich, nourishing relationships. I was just very, very basically isolated almost entirely. And my parents tried to kind of step in and, but I was, I was over 18. So they didn't really have any control. They tried some interventions. I was with multiple therapists and an inpatient and outpatient and just the whole, the whole nine yards. And that road culminated in a suicide attempt. And after that happened, I had a moment where I thought, okay, I know I'm never going to heal from this, but I want to try. I want to just see if I can try because I had such a supportive family. I thought if I lose my life to this, which I think I probably will, I was in that state of mind. I just want them to know that I at least gave it a shot. So that was my catalyst. You know, it was rock bottom, right? A suicide attempt definitely is rock bottom for the most part, I think for most people. And that was the catalyst. And I always say to people when they're working through overcoming an addiction, that you eventually have to want it badly for yourself, but it doesn't have to be the catalyst. There can be other reasons that you start down that road. And my loving family was that reason for me, just to show them that I was giving it a good, honest go. And I ended up finding a a therapist that I deeply connected with, and she had just a really effective program for winding me out of this eating disorder. And it took, it took over a year and we worked really hard, but it was very, it was very effective. And um, yeah, I got better. (laughs) Well, that's beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. I know that's raw and that's, that's a sensitive subject. So during that year and year or so plus of, of working through the therapy and your road to recovery, I read somewhere that you were introduced to cycling. Is that kind of the same time frame where you decided to pick up a bike? It, it is. It's because of her. It's because of my therapist. Oh, really? so, towards the end of the journey that we took together, and I was so, so, so much better. And she knew that I wanted to be able to exercise or move my body in a healthy way again. I definitely had the part of anorexia that is practicing over-exercise and six, seven, eight hours in the gym on the Stairmaster and the treadmill and the elliptical. And so, you know, she knew that I wanted to eventually get to where I could do that healthfully because I wasn't going to consider myself healed until I could move. (laughs) Just I'm living out in LA by the time and, you know, it's sunny all the time. And I wanted to be able to do that. So she, towards the end said, okay, I think that you are ready to be able to 
exercise. And I want you just to pick something that you don't have any negative connections to from your past. So don't pick running, don't pick the gym, don't pick, you know, all, all the, all the, the hot spots for me in, in my disorder, in my disease. And so that's what led me to choose cycling because I had never spent any time on a bike. And again, I'm living out in LA and I thought, gosh, what an amazing feeling that would be to get to where I could ride long enough where I could ride from Venice up to in the Santa Monica mountains, down PCH and back and would be so freeing and that wind in my face and, and just coming out of what I was coming out of, which was, you know, the confines of an eating disorder, a very regimented starvation plan. I just kept thinking about how great it would feel to feel that free. So it was kind of more that connection than any than actually pedaling a bike. Just so she said, I like it. I love it. Cycling it is. So I went and got a bike and then this never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So picking up a bike, I, I can attest to that. I cycle as well. Obviously not on the same same level, but there is something freeing about being on a bike. And I've never seen anyone on a bike that doesn't smile. You know, yeah. I, no, right. I mean, I mean, I guess maybe when you're at that competitive level, like you eventually became that, you know, you're just so head down and it's, it's just so intense that you train for that. But I mean, just in the casual person riding down the road, everyone looks so happy on a bike. It's so liberating. I know. <laughs> so I also read that, that the first bike you had was a little bit out of sorts, maybe out of place for the, for the group you were riding with. Was it kind of a clunker Nazi or was it like? Yeah. I mean, when she said go get a bike, I was like, okay, like I'm just going to get like a whatever bike, you know, it was like nothing, no big deal. It was a couple hundred bucks and it was like, it was a mountain bike. I did end up putting slicks on it because you're going to ride on the street, the knobby tires, you're, you're really going to be slogging along. Was it full suspension? Did it have like a no, full suspension? No, it was just a front suspension. Yeah. I don't, okay. I don't even know if they had, they, they have full suspensions back then. They probably did. But I, I ended up signing up for the California AIDS ride, like just a couple months later. Cause I thought, gosh, I, you know, I'm loving the, this feeling and I want to see if I can do something good with it. So, you know, you had to raise money at the time you had to raise $2,500, which to me at the time was like, $250 million. It just felt like so much money to raise. But I did it. And I was so excited, so proud. And it's from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And it's not a straight route. So, they, you know, they kind of zigzag. So the route's about 700 miles in seven days. So, you know, and after that is when I realized, like, I don't know, maybe I'm slightly better at this than the next person, because I ended up riding a lot of the days with the front pack on the mountain bike with the front suspension, with the slip tires. And, you know, they're on road bikes, of course. Then it happened to be mostly guys. And so at the end, a couple of the guys said to me, you should try a race because this is not normal that you just started this. So I just thought, well, that sounds fun too. I mean, I was just in the you know, in the fun phase, I guess, in those couple of years of just what's, what's kind of that next challenge that I'm going to really enjoy. So, so I tried a race. Try to race. So they were like, who's this chick when the, on the squish bike hanging yeah, with us? They were totally like, what are, who are you? What are you doing? It's like, I, I mean, I was suffering like a dog. That's also where I recognized had I had a high suffering capacity and I liked suffering. I liked the challenge of it. And, but it was basically just, yeah, it was basically seven days of just drooling and heaving. And <laughs> it was, it was really hard, but it was such a, it, it was just such a cool challenge to try to stay with them. And I mean, I didn't stay with them all day, every day in the front, you know, I mean, I got dropped plenty of times, but anyway, there were moments there where I guess there was a, you know, a couple shiny moments where they're like, okay, you should, you should compete. You should try competing. So 
What events then? Was it that group of people that saw something in you? Was it yourself that you just were realizing that, wow, I'm like you mentioned, I'm, I'm really good at this. Maybe I should try other things beyond this one race. What I guess what I'm getting at is what led you to becoming an Olympian? I mean, that's a, a big difference between, hey, I picked up a clunker with some front squish to being an yeah. Olympian. I mean, well, it's a, there's 13 years in between there. So it's yeah. like we'll try to condense 13 years <laughs> yeah. in a few minutes. It's a lot, just a lot more suffering is all that took place in those next 13 years. Um, I think in the beginning, really, honestly, it was them, you know, I was so green. I mean, I didn't know anything. So when they said I was good, I was like, I don't know if I believed them or not. It just, honestly, it just sounded fun to try a race, like to see if I could even do a race. So I did the race and it was horrible. It was like the most hard, it was still almost one of the most horrible races I've ever done. I've done a lot of horrible races in like sideways sleeting rain in Belgium and Holland and just like, what am I doing with my life? But it was pouring rain. It was up in Monterey, California. And I had no skills because I started cycling way too late to have honed any skills. Everybody that I'm racing with started at least early teenage years. So I was dangerous on a bike, quite frankly. I mean, I was, I crashed, I don't know how many people out in that first race in sliding through the, <laughs> through the rain in the corners. And so, but it was, I remember after that race, I went to the van to warm up and I called my mom and I was like, well, we can mark that off the list. Cause that was the most terrifying, horrendous thing I've ever been through. Absolutely awful. So that's not going to happen again. She's like, okay, well, at least you tried, you know, great job, whatever. And then pretty much by the next afternoon, I was like, where's the next race? Because I was just pissed <laughs> that I just had to at least do a race that was somewhat enjoyable. And then I was going to be like, okay, next thing. And then I think it was honestly just the adventure of the journey that kept me in for that long. I just kept trying to see if I could do a little more, a little more. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I had this dream when I was a little girl of standing on the Olympic podium or going to the Olympics. I mean, I loved watching the Olympics with my mom, but I didn't, wasn't going, I mean, what was I going to go there in? You know, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> I wasn't doing a sport that I, so it was just, I had great love and great respect for it, but I hadn't dreamt of it. So for me, it was just this wild unfolding of events that just led to opportunities that I just kept saying yes to. Yeah. Sounds like uh, what you touched on earlier, that that competitive nature you had kind of kicked in, huh? That too. Yeah, I wanted to see if I could do it. I was very competitive with myself. I've never been super competitive with others that all that much, but I really have always been with myself. And I just, yeah, I just, I just really wanted to see where I could go and what might happen next at every turn, basically. Yeah. So you're not plant-based at this point, are you? No, 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 no. So not plant-based. Not yet. I'm curious to learn the catalyst that led you to go plant-based. Can you take me back to that time and kind of walk me through what that was like for you? Well, so that's, you know, I started cycling at 26. So that, you know, in in terms of like literally my first ride of PCH that my therapist suggested. And so I had, you know, it was nine years later and I am, I guess maybe 10 years later, a few years out from Olympic Games, two and a half years or something. And I'm at a race in Minnesota and I am just doing some research and I come across, you know, what we all know now, but what goes on behind closed doors every single day, every single second to billions of animals. And so basically I just, you know, was just right in front of me was this is how food is made and this is how it's treated to get to your plate. 
which then a lot of us at that point in time, you make a decision. I never want to see that again. You know, you turn your back on it and you're like, that's effed up, but I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Or you start to, to, to go down the rabbit hole of what is this? What am I seeing? Why don't I know about this? Why are we being lied to? Is this real? You know, is this, I mean, is this, is this fake what I'm seeing? You know what I mean? Or is there, is there a conspiracy theory? So many questions. And it was way too many questions for me to deny it. And so I went down the rabbit hole and um, just overnight left meat in my wake and then eggs and dairy, you know, as I continue the research, right, as you continue down the rabbit hole, then you start to understand every way, shape and form they use an animal is exploitative. And I just didn't want to be a part of it. So it was ethical reasons, you know, I didn't know what necessarily was going to happen to my body or my output or my performance or anything. Yeah, but you were you were drawing a firm line in the sand. You're like, listen, I'm not going to be part of this in any way, shape or form. And I'll deal with the consequences that happen with relating to, you know, obviously the Olympics and anything else you're going to do in your life by going plant based. Like you said, it was unknown. You didn't know if it was going to actually benefit you or not. I didn't. Yeah, I really didn't. It just was like, you know, I knew what felt right. And I knew it would feel very wrong to turn my back on what I had seen just because of a fear of potentially what might happen to my body as an athlete. I knew I would never be able to live with myself if I made that decision. So I thought, well, here we go. We'll see, we go. We'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> it like, worked out. The, yeah. Yeah. It did. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> it For worked sure. out great. So it sounds like you've overcome many obstacles and challenges in your life. And it feels like everything that you've persevered through ended up being somewhat of a foundation for what was next for you, it seems like. And I get the sense from reading your bio and hearing you on other podcasts, including your own, that you're absolutely dedicated to the purpose-filled mission that is Switch for Good. And I kind of want to segue into that now. I love the name, by the way, Switch for Good. How did you come up with that name? And, and can you walk me through what it was like when you first decided to go all in on this. Wasn't there a commercial that kind of caused a little bit of a stir that kind of spearheaded where you went? Yes. We didn't start this journey with the thinking of starting an organization or a movement. And it was, it was, it was back in 2018. I was sitting on the couch watching the Olympic uh, trials for the winter Olympics in Pyeongchang that, that February. So this was, you know, January and um, a milk commercial came on, right? Milk, the dairy industry, the Milk Pet Board is the title sponsor for the U.S. Olympic Committee. So I had spent years inside the training centers in uh, U.S. Olympic training centers, both in Colorado Springs and Chula Vista, California, where dairy was almost religion. I mean, it was pushed on the athletes as the one of the only foods and certainly the very best food for re- recovery and repair. We had, They had recovery bars that they literally called the recovery bar. It was mostly dairy foods. I'm sure today you would find some plant-based protein powder or something, but back then it was cottage cheese and yogurt and eggs and whey protein and casein. I mean, it was just, just dairy basically. And which, you know, was here and there to me for many years until it became, what the F is this? <laughs> you know, a couple of years out, like all of a sudden I'm seeing the whole world through new lenses and I'm thinking, why, why would cow's milk be the only way that a human being can recover for at the height of sport? That just doesn't even sound like it makes any sense when you say it out loud. So 
And he had been a part of that for so many years. And this milk commercial came on and it just basically used the relationship between a, a world champion skier and her mother to basically show how critical cow's milk is in growing up. And it's it, the commercial ends with nine out of 10 Olympians grew up drinking milk, you know, because it has a uh, natural proteins, which is there aren't any other kinds of proteins besides natural ones. <laughs> like there's no other option. <laughs> right. And balanced nutrition. So that would be up for debate, right, on how balanced it is. But anyway, I saw that commercial and something just struck a chord in me from all that history of being being lied to, being sold a false narrative that this and that I knew now was completely untrue, right? Because this is obviously this is this is way after my Olympics. This is 2018. So I've been plant-based for a long time by this point. And I just a fire started me and I thought, we have got to stand up. We have got to say no and we have got to tell the truth. And so I ended up connecting with amazing, incredible people that are in it to win it like I am and like you are. And we put this commercial on the 2018 closing ceremony. So really just like five and a half weeks after I saw this commercial, we put this together. We got seven vegan Olympians together and shot this commercial and um, said cow's milk is not a health food. Basically, this is not you know you, you've been you've been lied to. So that was the that was a catalyst for it. And after the commercial, we just started sifting through and realizing, hey, this is something different, something that could be powerful, something that could be really helpful for a lot of the world, and something that no one is specifically doing in this movement. And so the organization Switch for Good was born. And the credit of the name goes to some of the marketing people that we were working with on that commercial. They came up with it for that. And they're effect partners out of Minneapolis and they're all vegan too. And so it just felt right, right? There's so many reasons that it's good to switch. It's right. So it just for the good of everything. And then the four in Switch for Good is um, health, performance, planetary responsibility and food justice. So those are those are like our four cornerstones of Switch for Good and why we do the work. I love that. That yeah, those those pillars are important. And I have notes on here to talk about those. Improve health, enhance performance, planetary responsibility and food justice. I mean, talk about cornerstones and anchoring your cause on real world stuff. So, let's talk about some of the initiatives and programs. I'm on your website. I've got it pulled up over here. And it's robust, by the way. You guys are really buttoned up. Thank you. I notice, you're welcome. It's, it's beautiful work. So credit to you guys for all the work you put into this. I'm drawn to the Race for Us tab. It really caught my eye. What is that all about? Can someone literally race for Switch for Good? Well, sure. So we get, we, you know, I don't know, about halfway into our life, which is only about, we're only like about 18 months old. We started having different athletes emailing us and asking if they could raise money for Switch for Good in their next race, whether it's an ultra race, whether they're running, cycling, swimming, jujitsu, whatever they're doing. And so we thought, wow, yeah, let's create a way for people to do that. We have an ultra runner right now that's training for a big ultra race coming up. And she is, I'm trying to think of the ones that are currently right now as this begin, as the season's beginning to, well, we'll see when the season starts for everyone right in the middle of COVID. But so, yeah, so it's just a, it's an awesome way. I mean, obviously we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So there's a wonderful way for donations to come in for the work that we do. And then just like I did the AIDS ride, like, you know, athletes really love 
to be purpose-driven. A lot of athletes like to be purpose-driven in their training. And I think it helps to drive them through the hard days of training to get to the race, to, to raise the money for something they believe in. So, yeah. And yeah, so you guys have switch for good kits too. So if there's a cyclist out there that wants to really rock the switch for good gear, get yes. in touch. <laughs> yeah, we do. We have run, running kits too. It's a fun way to to rock the message. You're right. <laughs> Thank you. No doubt. You know, one thing that, uh, another thing that was really uh, intriguing to me was the sports team partnerships. Now, back in my day, many, many moons ago, I was uh, a strength and conditioning coach for a professional football team. And, and I can completely understand where you're coming from when it comes to the nutrition of the athletes. I mean, these guys were big, powerful, strong guys, and we're feeding them dairy and meat and all this stuff. Fast forward 20 some years and in my life now, Man, how powerful would it have been if someone were able to come in and speak to my team and say, this is what you really need to perform. These are the foods that will fuel you to win the game you're trying to win. But that wasn't out there. And a lot of it isn't out there now. But it sounds like you have a platform where you'll partner with pro teams, youth and beyond. That's amazing. Is that something that's really starting to take off for you guys? Yes, for sure. It's a it's a huge initiative for us and something that we feel is is where we can make ultimately a really big impact. As you probably know, most people know, a lot of the dairy funded control skewed research is sent to health departments, university and college and high school athletic departments and teams as well as pro sports teams. So this is a multifaceted holistic initiative to be at every single college and university and pro teams and be able to disseminate the truth. So a couple ways. We have a very important and, and wide scale report that's being released at the end of July in the midst of three more TV commercials that we're putting on this summer. Obviously, they were a lead in into the Tokyo Olympics, but that's not happening anymore. So they are a lead in into just the truth. <laughs> so, so we have them running, they'll be running for 80 days on the Today Show and on streaming and radio and everything is a whole whole plan. So that report will be released to every single, like I just mentioned, college, university, high school, athletic departments, uh, you know, health departments, etc. So with that, in tandem with that, obviously we've been put on hold right now, we can't go anywhere. But we have started the process with the LA Clippers. They actually got a hold of us and said, come in here and teach us the truth and teach us what the optimal recovery is. As we know, most people are somewhat aware and some not, 65% of the world's population cannot properly digest dairy because they are lactose intolerant, right? Which is one of the sugar molecules, lactose and dairy. And when we're born, we're born with an enzyme to help digest that called lactase, which genetically turns off around the age four or five or six, depending, because we no longer need it because we should be done breastfeeding by, by five or six. And so in most of the, way over half the world's population, it does turn off. If it does not turn off, you actually are known to have lactase persistence, which is abnormal. It's a genetic mutation that over time has happened because we, you know, have been drinking cow's milk for the longest. So white Northern Europeans are the ones that are only about 15% lactose intolerant because they have this genetic mutation. So people of color, people of African descent, Latino descent, Asian descent are 86% lactose intolerant. Asians, 98%. So the Clippers, good example, they, the entire team is of African descent. They have one white guy. 
So their te- their entire team is intolerant to dairy because of the lactose, about 86% of them. So for a professional athlete or any athlete, when you're intolerant to something, your body mounts a defense in the form of inflammation. And I probably don't need to go into the specifics of how much inflammation is an inhibitor to not only recovery, but premium performance and growth and output. And so this is really really interesting to so many sports teams, but especially the sports team who are predominantly black because, you know, that's almost all of them that this is a problem for. So we went into the Clippers. I went with two doctors and myself, and we presented to their entire performance team, their nutritionists, their dietitians, their coaches, their trainers, and their chefs. And so we're running a program with the Clippers right now, which was, which is stalled, but they're down the street from us. So we'll be back the second this is, um, this is opening back up. And that is what we plan to do with every other sports team and college and university team. So we're going to be doing a lot, a lot of traveling when this is, uh, when this COVID is over. So I'm getting my rest now. Yeah. Rest up. Cause it sounds like you're going to be a road warrior, my friend. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's how I like it though. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. So when you first walked in, I mean, give me the sense where they re- they contacted you. So obviously they were receptive. But I mean, did you see some light bulb moments when you were speaking to this group of people like, oh, wow, I can't believe she just said that or these doctors just said that. I had no idea. Yeah, you know, a mixture, a few light bulb moments and a few, you know, eyeballs that were like, you're full of shit. I mean, really? you know, well, this is information that we have been fed our entire lives as the truth. Who has been feeding it to us? The dairy industry. So that's part of how I open up, right, is just getting people to kind of step back and at least conceptualize everything that they've learned, who has taught it to them, the people that are going to profit off of you believing them. So just kind of unwinding that and just giving the suggestion that they might be more critical in their thinking about this nutrition or any nutrition, depending on where the you know, where the source came from. So, but the nutritionists and the dietitians there, I think were the most skeptical because they're the ones who had been, who have just been reading this dairy research, right. And just accepting it as, as the gold standard, not looking any deeper. And that was my issue with the U S Olympic committee. You know, it was like, they just took that money and then that's all the research that they fed into their dietitians. And there weren't any dietitians there that were saying, well, hold on a minute. Let's look at other research, not disseminated by the people that are profiting off of this, and have a fair evaluation. So the nutritionists were kind of like, uh, I don't know. But a couple of the trainers and coaches were, were really intrigued. And it was quite interesting. The chefs were probably the most intrigued. They, I think, just love the idea of the variety, right? And, and learning new ways to make the same food different and uh so, you know, that's going to be like that everywhere. And I, I always forget it. And I always learn it every single time. I always forget that people are going to be like, what the hell? Because I'm so inundated in it now. And it just, you know, it's so obvious to me. And then, you know, you go in and you're like, yep, this is going to be the same conversation for many years because people are like, wait, they told me this was good. What do you mean? So it's like, oh, shoot. Okay. We've got to start it, you know, step, step one again. Yeah. Reel it back. Milk does not do a body good, people. And here's why. <laughs> lay it out. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, Dotsy. I really love that. I mean, that speaks to me big time. And obviously, it's going to speak to a lot of people in a large way, because I mean, that's one professional team. Man, I'm just sitting here visualizing the momentum 
once three and four and 10 and 15 and 20 and leagues are all on board with this movement that you're creating. I mean, that's beautiful. That has to just fire you up when you think about that long term. I'm excited. We got a lot of, got a lot of work to do, but nobody in our organization is afraid of work. So yeah, we're amped and ready. All right. Well, listen, I know you have to get going and, and I've got a couple of things to do too, but before we close this thing out, is there anything that you'd like to add to the conversation? Perhaps some words of wisdom for those not convinced that milk does not do a body good. I know you laid out a really good argument there, but it's, you, you can touch on anything. Any, any words of wisdom you have for, for the audience? Sure. Well, in, instead of maybe boring them with a list of reasons milk is terrible, because you can go to switchforgood.org and click on why ditch dairy and anything you need to know Bam. from cancers to inflammation, right, to heart disease, to performance. I mean, it's just, it's all there. We have 66 research studies cited. It is everything we say is cited from a research. So, you know, we're not just running our mouths. So I think what is truly helpful for people, though, is something that I was just touching on. And that is in general, be more critically minded, critically thinking minded of any information that comes in. And this dairy journey, I believed milk does a body good. My mom did. I grew up on, you know, macaroni and cheese and ranch dressing and milk. I mean, we thought that that made sense. And we never really questioned. We never asked why. And now that I'm asking why, it's making me realize so many areas of my life that I haven't asked more questions. And quite soon after I was, you know, Switch for Good was born and I was doing this work, I was watching TV and a car commercial came on. I think it was for Volvo. And it said something like, car and driver voted this car, the safest car of 2019. And right then I thought, says who? And who did, what kind of car did they compare it to? And that's what I've learned in all of the dairy study dissemination is, You always want to look at what things are being compared to when someone tells you something's good for you. Most of the dairy studies are compared to the standard American diet. So if that's what your level is, like McDonald's and Burger King, (laughs) I don't think that's most people's level they want it compared to. Ask more questions, right, about that that car commercial. They could have compared it to a 57 Chevy, Chevy. That is yeah. safer than that. Okay, well, that's that's not what, what I was thinking. the first bike. <laughs> exactly. They could have compared it to anything they wanted. So, yeah, I th- it, because it's so empowering to think more critically and ask more questions in all areas and aspects of your life, even in your relationships, right? And even in new relationships that you're in, to go deeper and, and just, uh, and I'm not saying be negative, just ask more questions. I love it. That's a beautiful way to close it out. By the way, I've got a bang up mac and cheese, plant-based mac and cheese recipe. I'll have to send it to you. You got to try it out. I love that. Trader Joe's just came out with a vegan mac. I just saw it yesterday and it's, it's probably got too many preservatives and stuff in it, but I just, I had to buy it anyway because I want to try it because it's easy, but I'd love your recipe for when I'm feeling like I have the energy and the time to do that. Yeah, it's not that hard. It's not too hard. So, Dati, thank you kindly for spending some time with me today. Your redemption story is truly amazing. And I'm very grateful for your willingness to share that with the world, as I said earlier. And I would also like to add that I applaud your dedication to educating the world on the dangers of dairy. You're a leader and someone that is truly making a positive difference in this world. Dati, thank you for your service to humanity. We need more of you. Thank you so much. 
My pleasure. My pleasure. All right, everyone. That was Dati Bausch, the executive director at Switch for Good. Please be sure to check out my show notes to learn more about her and her mission at Switch for Good. And hey, take the pledge. I did. I even signed up for a petition they have going on. Everyone can do it. Get online, switchforgood.com. I'll have the links in my show notes. Until next time, peace, love, and plants. Now that's a woman on a purpose-filled mission. I love her triumphant story of redemption. She didn't quit. She overcame the odds and not only got healthy, but went on to become an Olympian. What an absolutely remarkable feat. But she didn't stop there. She knew that her work wasn't finished. It had only just begun. Now fueled by a desire to promote health and performance, while spreading the message about planetary health and food injustice, she has her eyes set on eliminating dairy and all the suffering that comes with it. I stand with Dotsie and the entire team at Switch for Good. The science is well documented. Milk doesn't do a body good. I sincerely hope you enjoyed getting to hear Dotsie's story. And if you're inclined, throw me a like and a follow on my social. I love engaging with everybody, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Until next time, peace, love, and plants.